Good morning. Today, we come to the end of our sermon series on Sabbath. But our hope is that today and after our engagement with the rest of the seventh day would not come to an end. We've discussed Sabbath or Shabbat from a variety of angles. Shabbat is an act against empire, a declaration that we are not slaves. Shabbat is a sign of our relationship with God. Shabbat is an invitation that we extend to the world around us, welcoming those that we previously maybe thought were outside of the box. And today, well, we'll get to today. But first, we need a little bit of background. Chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Numbers provide the backdrop for what we will find today in the verses from the book of Hebrews. Numbers is, of course, one of the books of the Torah. It continues the story of the people of Israel as they begin their journey through the desert after the ten plagues, the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, and meeting God at Mount Sinai. And in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Numbers, the people of Israel have made their way to a place called Kadesh. It's at the edge of the promised land. God says to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So Moses chooses 12 men, one from each tribe, and sends them in. They enter the land of Canaan. They explore it. And they return with their findings for 40 days. They were in there. When they return to Kadesh, they come bearing bountiful fruit. And they have stories of beauty and fertility of the land, but they also have stories of giants. The sons of Enoch, as they're called, descendants of the Nephilim from before the great flood. Ten of the 12 men that went into the land spread their fear of these giants. Two of the men, Joshua and Caleb, make the case that with God with them, they can win the day. But of course, the voices of the ten fearful men were louder and more persuasive than the voices of the two faithful ones. The people of Israel cry out that they would have been better off dying in Egypt than continuing this journey. They want a new leader. They want a new vision And they want a way back into the slavery that they already knew so well. Even this slavery seems to them a comfort in the face of the challenges that they see. And in the text, it is this rebellion at Kadesh that causes God to sentence the people to wandering in the desert for an entire generation. One year for every day that they had explored the land. God had told them over and over and over that he was going to give them this rich and bountiful land, but somehow they never heard him. Instead, they saw giants. They saw weapons. They saw armies. And seeing these things caused a fear that this generation would never have a chance to overcome. These people ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years, And this entire generation of people of Israel died in the desert, never having the chance to enter the promise, never having the chance to come to the end of their journey, never being able to stop and sit and rest 
And even Moses, the nation's redeemer and deliverer, would die before he enters the promise. The next generation did make it into the promised land. They took the land for their own and they began the next chapter of what would become the story of the people of God. Centuries after this rebellion at Kadesh, somebody wrote a psalm to remember the events. The psalm is number 95 in our Bibles, and it begins as an outpouring of praise and thanksgiving towards the God who created the world and everything in it. A God who is a great king over the lesser gods. And the psalm ends as a warning and an exhortation to those who heard it. Remember when you tested God. Remember when you quarreled with one another. You did not hear his voice then, but today, today you have the chance to listen anew. The writer of the book of Hebrews uses several of the Psalms to articulate and argue his point throughout the book. And today we'll pick up his sermon in chapter 3. Here he quotes the latter half of this Psalm, Psalm 95. And then like the Psalm, he both warns and exhorts his audience into a new awareness of God in their own lives. Please stand with me and listen and hear this text As I read to you today from the third and fourth chapters of the book of Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. As in my anger, I swore they will not enter my rest. And continuing a little bit later, therefore, while the promise of entering this rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. They were not united by faith. With those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he sets a certain day, today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, the book of Hebrews is very interesting. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know when exactly he or she wrote it. And we don't know who he or she wrote it to. These are all things that typically help us to understand and interpret the different books of the Bible. But for the book of Hebrews, all of this contextual information is missing. 
That's not to say, however, that we know nothing about the book. We do know that the author had an amazing knowledge of the Greek language. We know that the author also had an immense knowledge of the history of the Judaic faith and the Hebraic understanding of the text. And from the overall content and flow of the book of Hebrews, we can make a few more assumptions. The author had a pastoral concern for those that he was writing to. This author knew this community very well, and he sought or she sought to both admonish them and encourage them. The author of Hebrews was a deep theological thinker, and the way that this author approaches the main problem that the congregation is facing is by inviting them to join him into a deep theological exploration of Jesus the Christ what they had heard about Jesus and from Jesus and what that meant about who they were, who God was, and that the way that they could live. Thomas G. Long is a professor at the Candler School of Theology. He uses the title The Preacher when talking about the author of Hebrews, and so we will too. In the introduction to his commentary on the book of Hebrews, Long lays out the problem facing the congregation that this letter or sermon was intended for. Long says that the preacher is addressing a real and urgent pastoral problem, one that seems astonishingly contemporary. His congregation is exhausted. They are tired. Tired of serving the world, tired of worship, tired of Christian education, tired of being peculiar and whispered about in society, tired of the spiritual struggle, tired of trying to keep their prayer life going, tired even of Jesus. Their hands droop and their knees are weak. Attendance is down at church and they are losing confidence. The threat to this congregation is not that they are charging off in the wrong direction. They do not have enough energy to charge off anywhere. The threat here is that worn down and worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, leaving the community and falling away from the faith. Long says that the problem facing the preacher's congregation was astonishingly contemporary. Does this issue facing the people of this congregation 2,000 years ago sound familiar for us today? We come to church because we all have some kind of idea what a life in Christ can look like. We come because we've received promises of peace and communion and purpose and easy burdens and light yokes and because we see what we see in this world is not the way that we want the world to look. But when we look at the story of God, even the promises don't end up looking the way they sound. Long goes on to say that the promise of a holy nation hangs by frail human threads, like imperiled Isaac, sly Jacob, and lustful David. The chosen and redeemed people of God look more like nomads than a nation, wandering in the wilderness, fearful of the journey, complaining of conditions, and yearning foolishly for the good old days of Egypt. The promised land, the land of milk and honey, feels more like a land of blood, sweat, and tears. The hoped-for Messiah, the Savior, turns out to be a rag-wrapped baby in a feed stall, 
And the joyful life of Christ turns out to be full of resistance and saturated with suffering. The promises of God do not often look like they sound. And so Long says that the preacher asks his congregation to consider this question. Should we trust what we hear or what we see? Do we trust the gospel or the suffering? I happen to think that this is a question that's very much appropriate for our church today. Should we trust what we hear or what we see? Do we really trust this good news that we proclaim? Or do we trust that there's no more to any of this than striving towards some unclear goal? The preacher addresses this question and guides his people through this question by highlighting a few concepts from Psalm 95 and from the events that happened to the ancestors at Kadesh. Maybe his words have something for us today. The first of these concepts that the preacher talks about is the interplay between faith and obedience, between unbelief and disobedience. The preacher links these two ideas repeatedly. Those who have faith are those who listen. Those who do not believe are those who do not listen. In the Greek of the book of Hebrews, both the words faith and belief come from the single Greek word pistis. Pistis means to have faith, to believe, to trust, to be assured. N.T. Wright, who's one of our favorite theologians around this church, was asked once how he would define the word faith. And he said that his studies have led him to define faith with a single simple phrase, wherever this goes, I am with you. He says that having faith means that we say this to God. We say this to each other. And God says this to us. Wherever this goes, I am with you. And the word for obey in the Greek in this passage is akuo. This word means to hear, to listen, to heed, or even to understand. And it's linked in the mind of the preacher to a Jewish word that you all know very well. In Hebrew, there is no word for obey. Every time that you might see the word obey, when you're reading the Hebrew scriptures, the word that's being translated is shema. Shema. Hear. Listen. Understand what I'm saying to you. So for the preacher, faith means that wherever this goes, I am with you. And to obey means to listen, to hear, to understand. The second concept that the preacher talks extensively about when discussing this psalm is the word today. The psalm says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What the preacher wants his congregation to know is that the promise of rest Still applies today. The psalm was written as an open invitation to enter rest hundreds of years after the initial promise. That open invitation still stood at the time of the writing of Hebrews. 
For the preacher, today is transcendent. Every day is today. The promise is open, just waiting for acceptance. Long also says that for the preacher, today carries the sense of urgent time. The critical moment in terms of faith. The propitious time to decide, the kairos, the eternal now. This sermon to the Hebrews tells us that there is no better time to enter the rest, the promise, than today. And for those of us reading this book, 2,000 years after it was written, this promise of rest still stands. For even today is today for the writer of Hebrews. And finally, we need to explore what the preacher means when he says rest. The preacher has a deep and even surprising understanding of rest. The first thing that the preacher notes is that for the psalmist, rest is equivalent into the entry of the promised land. The people have come out of more than 400 years of slavery. Their promised destination is not just this piece of land. Not just the fertile soil, but their destination is actually rest. What's more is that this rest is also linked to the rest of God at the finish of the creation poem. For the preacher, when God rested on the seventh day, it was not because he had finished all of his work. God's resting was actually part of the work. God rests as the culmination of what he's creating and what he's setting into motion in the world. The preacher then bounces far forward to draw our minds to the redemptive work that God has continued to do in the world. And when that redemptive work is finished, the preacher says God will rest again. And this is where things get interesting. For the preacher, all of this rest the rest from the beginning and the rest from the end is available today. While God is in the midst of his work, and while we're in the midst of our own. Another professor of the New Testament at Candler School of Theology is Luke Timothy Johnson. Johnson says that the preacher indicates that the promise offered to God's people now is no longer that of a material possession. No longer just a piece of land, no matter how fertile and inviting. But the promise now is of a participation in the divine life. It means that those who enter into God's rest will enjoy a relief from their labors in exactly the same way that God does. The Sabbath rest is therefore to live as God lives. Johnson makes the point that since we know that God is still working for the restoration of creation... This rest is paradoxical. It comes in the midst of our labor. Johnson explains this paradox by saying that the rest that is God's very being is not disturbed by God's working in the world because all that God does is an outpouring of infinitely rich life rather than an effort to redress a lack. Hebrews makes clear that this is a matter of hearing Trusting and obeying a gift already given through Christ. Humans who accept this gift cease from their works, not in the sense that they cease human effort, but in the sense that, like God, their works are no longer a striving 
to fill a need, but sharing in an outpouring of abundant life. God works from what he has an abundance of. Life, love, rest, security, faith, spirit. He does not work from that which he or those whom he's working on behalf of are lacking. And we enter into rest when we too work from abundance. So let's ask ourselves the question then. Do we trust what we see or what we hear? I'm telling you that whatever it is that is exhausting you, there is rest available today. What is it that's making you tired? Is it your marriage? Is it work or school? Is it finances? Is it maybe even this church? What is it that you see? As you call to mind these things that you see that are leaving you exhausted, listen to these words. Hear these words. Understand. Trust. Shema. The people of Israel had experienced the power and presence of God. They had heard him tell them of a promise, a promise of land and a promise of rest. But when they saw the challenges ahead of them, they forgot what they had heard. They no longer knew that wherever they went, God was with them. They did not say to God, wherever this goes, we are with you. They couldn't even say to each other that wherever this goes, we are together. And so God had to keep teaching them. They wandered the desert for many, many years, learning to listen to this lesson over and over. Wherever this goes, I am with you. Wherever this goes, I am with you. Wherever this goes, I am with you. Today, we need to be sure that none of our brothers and sisters imagine that they cannot enter the promise of God. We see our challenges and we know they're real, but we have heard the call. Today, now. So today, let us enter this rest. For in doing so, we join God in his own way of being. We continue to work, but our work comes from abundance and blessing and not from a concern for what is lacking. For in this work and in this way of life, we find rest. We find peace. We find communion. May we embrace this new awareness today, for it is in today. It's in the eternal now that we remember and are linked to the beginning. It's in the eternal now that we look forward to the time when the redemptive work is finished. When we in creation are fully restored and renewed. It's in the rest of today, in the middle, in the midst of our labor, that we know the rest of our Genesis. And the rest of our eternal Sabbath. It's in this rest that we find ourselves living within the will and flow of spirit. It's this rest that joins us to God. Amen.